Hello, friends. This is Carrie Morrison. Welcome to Episode 7 in this first season of Heart Forward Conversations from the Heart. Miriam Feldman was my neighbor, and I had no idea until a friend handed me her book published just this year about the nightmare she was living through across the street. You will hear her say that she felt like she was on an odyssey, and when she looked out her front window, she felt completely alone. Mimi, which is how I knew her, says that as mothers, we tend to worry about childhood abduction or car accidents. Nothing prepares you for serious mental illness, she says. So this is her story and Nick's story. I love what she says when she describes how prior to Nick's illness, when driving around Los Angeles, she might see a guy screaming on a corner at nobody in particular. And she would wonder, where is his mother? How does this happen? When Nick got sick, then she realized how this happens. It's not because he had bad parents that don't care, she says. It's because the system crushes you. This is that story, the system crushing, and Miriam pushing back with all her might. Hi, this is Carrie Morrison, and welcome to another episode of Heart Forward, Conversations from the Heart. And today I am so delighted to have uh, Zooming In uh, from Washington State, I believe, uh, Miriam Feldman the author of an amazing book that just came out this year called He Came In With It, A Portrait of Motherhood and Madness. And I would have so loved to have done this interview here in Los Angeles in person, but we are taking advantage of the technology of Zoom. And it's so wonderful to see you today, Miriam. Thank you for having me. of this call. Happy to be here. And you are in Washington right now, right? Yes. Is it Onalaska? Is that how you... Yeah, Onalaska in the middle of nowhere in Washington State. Very good. Very good. So um, this book you wrote, he came in with it, is about your son and is about just the incredible journey that you've been on, which is a journey that's not over yet. It's, I suppose there might be a sequel someday if you have energy to write another book. It's quite a chronicle of what you and Nick and your family uh, have have gone through in trying to kind of like cope with all the uncertainty and the challenges and the struggles of of having a, a son and an adult son with mental illness. Let me ask you first, what drove you to write this book? It has quite, quite the tome. Well, you know, it started out as one thing and then sort of became another thing. In the beginning, a few years into the whole odyssey, I thought so often about the fact that in the very beginning, I felt completely alone. You know, I used to sit in my living room on Norton Avenue and we're neighbors, so you can visualize exactly what I'm talking about and look out my big hundred year old glass windows in the living room and feel like everybody out there was in a different world than me. And behind my front door was this dirty, ugly secret and that nobody understood. I had no connection to anybody. I was all alone in this scary, bad world. And at one point, I just thought, you know, if I'd been able to pick up a book that told the story in the way I would tell the story, it would have made such a difference. I wouldn't have felt so marginalized, so alone. So at one point I decided I wanted to write this story for the other mothers, for to put it out in the world because people, this was 15 years ago too. So people didn't talk about it as much. So that was the initial impulse. And then as it went along, it became kind of my love letter to Nick. I wanted something in this world that documented well, we went through as a family, but more than that, that represented him, who he was, who he is still, but that people can't really see. I wanted there to be a legacy. I wanted there to be something in the world. So that was my dual motivation. Well, I have no doubt that it's going to help a lot of families who are struggling with trying to make sense of what they're experiencing. And we'll talk a little bit about how hard that was for you. You know, I want to set the context. Yes, we were neighbors. We lived right across the street from each 
each other kitty corner. Our kids are relatively the same age range. They knew each other. And I also did not know what you were going through until I read the book, to be perfectly honest. And I do recall one time bumping into you up at our little Larchmont village. And Nick was probably... I would say maybe 19 or 20 at that time, because I remember you were looking pretty frazzled and said that you were dashing off to tend to your son who was living in an apartment. And I really did not know about that. I want to tell you the context under which I got this book. My very last meal before the pandemic shut us down, which was March 14th in Westwood, probably a mutual friend of ours, David Israelian, who runs the Painted Brain and Peer Mental Health. And Peer Mental Health is a collaborator on this podcast with Heart Forward. We were having breakfast, he and I and Ellen Sachs from USC, and he gave me a copy of your book. And I I said, this was my neighbor. I had no idea. So, yes, that is, you know, that is the experience that you went through. Tell us a little bit of just about the, your family and Nick and how the situation became apparent to you. I know there was a lot of fits and starts and confusion in knowing exactly what was happening with Nick. Well, you know, it's very hard initially, especially if you don't have any familiarity or background in mental illness. And it was, you know, I spent the first 15 years of my mother career obsessing about car accidents, child abductions, and childhood cancer, none of which materialized, thank God. And then out of left field came serious mental illness. And it was just not anything I'd ever really given any thought to. And when it happens, you know, it's not like take your kid and he has a blood test and he's diagnosed. All mental illnesses are diagnoses of criteria. So, you know, it, it's, it's, it's quite a dance up to the diagnosis. And the thing is, if you were to make a list of red flags for serious mental illness and a list of normal teenage behavior, you'd have virtually the same list. They all act crazy. They're all impulsive, irrational, confused serious mood swings. So you look at your kid and you think, yeah, he's just like all the other kids and he'll grow out of it. So we had really uh, years of that, you know, a couple of years of that. But then I noticed he wasn't growing out of it. And then drugs came into the picture. So then we ended up addressing it as a substance abuse problem initially. And, um, you know, all his friends now who are doing the same pot and different things back then, you know, they're all doctors and lawyers and musicians and husbands and fathers. And, you know, Nick went down the rabbit hole. I don't think that it is directly caused by the drugs, but it certainly was brought on by that. And so you just, you stumble through this maze of the mental health system, the diagnoses, the different doctors, what you can pay for, what you can afford, what's available, and working further along this diagnosis trail until finally when he was 20, he was diagnosed with schizophrenia. So prior to that, prior to 20, what were the rabbit holes they took you down that would maybe help other parents who'd be going through something similar? Well, it's the thing is, I don't know that this would circumvent the same thing happening to another parent because it kind of is the path you have to take. But initially he was, dying, you know, initially for a year or so, we dealt with it as a drug abuse problem. Then he was diagnosed with depression, then anxiety, then preliminary diagnosis of bipolar, and then four years into it diagnosed with schizophrenia. And so you just follow each step and each step you treat and you try and get them consistent and compliant with treatment. And it just kind of kept getting worse. You know, there's this arc of all the diseases and at the far end of the spectrum is severe bipolar and schizophrenia and schizoaffective. And it just kept getting worse. And, you know, in terms of advising other parents, that's, that's a tough one because everybody's path through this is different. You know, the thing about schizophrenia, especially in terms of the mental illnesses and probably most of the serious mental illnesses is they're bespoke for each person. So what schizophrenia looks like on Nick isn't good. I mean, look at our mutual friend, David Israelian or Ellen Sachs. I mean, it doesn't look the same 
on them as it is on Nick, and it doesn't manifest the same as Nick as the guy screaming on the corner. So there's very little continuity, and there's very little anybody can tell you except don't give up. And the only advice that I would give to a parent is early intervention and early treatment is the key to a positive outcome with schizophrenia. Early onset intervention is the most important thing because the sooner you get somebody with schizophrenia on medication, it prevents further damage to the brain. I have a doctor who's treating Nick right now, and his analogy is that schizophrenia is like a very slow moving stroke. So that the longer you go without medication, the longer the gray matter in the brain is exposed to damage. So the sooner you get them on, the better the long-term prognosis. So, And also then you run into the whole issue once they turn 18 of the HIPAA laws and not being able to force them. And that's a whole other gamut that you have to run that's difficult. Yeah, I want to discuss that with you here in just a moment. Let me just go back to the other observation about marijuana, which in, you know, and I'm I'm not a clinician. I'm I'm coming at this as a layperson also, but I have read this that the marijuana of, you know, 2020 is far more potent or scary than the marijuana that some of us may have taken in the 70s or 80s in college. And it's so scary that people are so cavalier about the availability and accessibility of marijuana for young people with this kind of growing evidence that it may have potential long-lasting impacts. What have you learned about that topic? I mean, you say that some will go off and still become a doctor and others are going to have their life impaired. What is the research showing us on that? You know, I'm with you and I'm even older than you. I smoked pot in the 60s and 70s, not 80s. And back then it was, a, you know, we regarded it as no big deal. And I remember sitting with a doctor when Nick was about 15 and him saying to me, you know, the pot now is a completely different animal when it was back then. But even then, he says, don't kid yourself. Marijuana is a psychoactive drug and it affects the brain chemistry. So you have young people who are in their teens, especially boys whose brains don't finish developing till later than girls. And this disrupts brain chemistry. So it's kind of, excuse the expression, no brainer that if you're predisposed or you're on the path to developing a disease, which is a brain chemistry disease like schizophrenia, obviously doing drugs that disrupt your brain chemistry, they are not going to be good. You know, the thing that the situation with his friends shows is that everybody who smokes pot obviously doesn't develop schizophrenia, but if you have a predisposition to it, it can kick you in. And that's one of the things that gnaws away at me late at night when I'm lying in bed doing my forensic exams of every moment of his life, trying to figure out how it must be my fault, is the fact that I always wonder if he hadn't turned upon, if he hadn't started doing these drugs, and he did a lot of other drugs too, because what happens is they're starting to hear voices. They're scared to death. So they're self-medicating to try and calm the schizophrenia symptoms. And if somehow I had been able to know and come down harder and really, you know, locked him up in a room and not let him get any pot, you know, maybe it wouldn't have developed. And that's a hard, that's a bitter pill to swallow. It's a hard thing to live with, that unknowing. So tell us a little bit about the American insurance system, which I think factors into this mess. It's so interesting. I love the way your doctor describes this as a slow moving stroke because we don't treat this as a true medical issue. And you talk about having an involvement with Kaiser and then Kaiser was in the world of providing mental health treatment. Then they backed out of it. Then they came back in it again. What is the situation with how health insurance deals with psychiatric therapy and the needs that if you were to truly do early onset intervention, what should it look like? Well, that's a huge subject. First of all, every state has different laws and is structured differently. There was just a report that came out stating that we have 50 different healthcare systems in this country because every single state is different. So there's no consistency. Some states are better than others. I find now that Washington state is more manageable for us than California was. But the problem is, and one of the issues that people are fighting for right now is integration of mental health into pediatric medicine, into early care of pediatric medicine so that there's screenings and there's, there's, um, there's, 
tests and issues dealt with from the time your child is a child. So it's not just they turn into their teens and something goes terribly wrong and then we look at it. So if there's an early integration of that, that changes the whole landscape a lot. As far as the insurance companies and Kaiser, yeah, on again, off again. We bounced around at one point. He was on Medi-Cal and in the county mental health system, which is a nightmare. It was draconian. And I, you know, the thing about all of this is that it is almost impossible to navigate. I'm a person who, first of all, I'm a pit bull. I don't give up. And when it comes to my kids, I really don't give up. And, you know, I'm white and I'm privileged and I have a college education. I'm a middle class person. I have some resources. This brought me to my knees. This almost took me out. And I mean, I still fight. I still spend hours and hours and hours every week negotiating the system, making sure everything's running right, making sure he's taken care of. You know, I used to look at, I drive around LA and I see the guy on the corner screaming to nobody. And I'd look at him and I'd think, where's his mother? Like, how does this happen? Where he has a mother, he's a father. How does this happen? And then it got sick. And I realized how it happens. It's not because he has bad parents who don't care. It's because the system crushes you. And negotiating and navigating the system and trying to find your loved one help is almost impossible. I agree with you on the person on the corner. One of the things we did in Hollywood with folks like that is we would go try to find their family. And invariably, there would be joy on the other side of the telephone. Like, yes, that I haven't seen, you know, my son for five years. How is he doing? And when I was in Italy, what impressed me from the very beginning is that they always include and connect the family to the person that they're treating. So let's talk about that threshold of turning 18, which is from what I understand is where a lot of situations go off the rails, because now if you had very intentionally involved parents who cared for their child, now the system completely marginalizes you from being involved or even being aware of what's going on. What what does that crossing the threshold feel like? How did it play out in Nick's life? Well, honestly, it's like the ground's pulled out from under you. In Nick's particular scenario, it led to a year or so of real terror and lack of control. But we were able to coerce him, not coerce him, we bribed him. You know, early on, I had a doctor who said to me, it's in the book, this scenario of, you know, I started, I paid Nick to take his medication and his sisters were just appalled. Nobody had ever paid them to take their amoxicillin. And they thought that this was just, you know, it's such a betrayal on such a level. But the doctor said to me, I said, but that goes against all the rules of parenting. And he said, all the rules of parenting are out the window now. All that matters is that you get this medication into his body every day and any way you can do it is fine. So what happened with Nick was at the point he reached 18 and he went off to college, he had a psychotic break and then he was homeless for a while and sleeping in a friend's garage. And we were able to, at one point, I just said to him, look, you're going to be, because he was going to be evicted from this garage. And one day I just said, well, I'm going to give it a try. And I said to him, look, if you, if you'll take the medication every day, dad and I will pay for an apartment so you won't be homeless. And, you know, I'll give you 10 bucks and a pack of cigarettes every day. That was the initial deal. And he looked at me and went, okay, I'll do it. And so we were able to segue into that period in a better way because he was willing to make the deal. That's rare. Most parents just completely lose the reins at that point. And then the big issue in that turning point becomes the HIPAA laws and the restrictions on doctors in terms of sharing information with family members and loved ones. And, you know, these HIPAA laws were developed in a very well-intentioned way, but they are not working with serious mental illness. You have to understand that the very organ that allows you to understand that you're sick is the organ that's afflicted. How can you be depended upon to navigate a reasonable course of treatment or even know that you're sick? I mean, nobody would allow a person who was inebriated to make medical decisions. So why do we allow people who are psychotic to make medical? It's the same kind of impairment, except actually worse. And the laws are written so that the doctors are not allowed to give the patients information out to protect their privacy. But what I did 
is, you know, you start to develop a way to navigate around that. And the good doctors will help you. You know, I used to do things like, okay, I'm going to ask you a question. And if you don't say anything, I'm going to assume the answer is no. And create a little sort of sign language, a little sort of way to get information back and forth. And that's something that I really think if, if you're creative and you really try hard and you get a good clinician is possible. And then the other thing is the HIPAA laws may say that doctors aren't allowed to divulge personal information about the patient, but doesn't say anything about them not being able to listen to you. And that's a mistake that I think a lot of parents make. They just assume that the door is shut and the door isn't shut. You have to be aggressive and obnoxious and kind of a pit bull. But I would say, you know, I know you can't tell me anything, but I want to give you this information. And I was known for, you know, long, endless emails documenting what happened and symptoms and reactions, because you as the parent, as the caregiver, have all this information that's pertinent to the treatment of your child and the child is not going to be able to impart that to the doctor. So I think that's an important thing for parents to know that they have to listen to you. And if you give them specific information and they ignore it, they're going to have a liability there. Yeah. You know, Mimi, it's so common sense what you're suggesting. And I recall in one of my first trips to Trieste being so impressed by the fact that they would not treat the interaction with, they call them users, the user in their system as a clinical experience, but they would talk about capturing that person's life story. And so that was job one. Who is this person? What is their context? Who is their family? How did they get to this place? What are their hopes and aspirations? So not only capturing their life story, but also their life aspirations. And then they would view that as their obligation, the mental health system, to kind of wrap that all together with a bow and help that person get back on track to achieve their life purpose. Our system is so just steeped in clinical mentality and uh, risk management is the best way I can describe it, trying to not break any rules to avoid lawsuits. I've heard this, but I don't know if it's true that there's been very few HIPAA lawsuits really in the final analysis, but it's used as a force field to almost make it impossible to treat people. So yeah, this time when Nick went off to college for a few days, it sounds like, and he came back home, there's a section in your book. It's so interesting. I lent my book to my friend Sarah, so I had to pull down the Kindle version. And the Kindle version will capture all the things that have been underlined most by the people who are reading it. So there's like a community. Yeah, yeah. no, you should, because there's some very pithy statements. But there's a, a section that everyone who, on Kindle underlined, it said, this was my first glimpse into the stabilize them and discharge them doctrine of the mental health system. The object is to render them temporarily harmless, usually with drugs, and spit them back out into the world. It seems that if Nick did not have you as a consistent caregiver, yes, he would have been homeless. And this explains so much of having lack of consistent caregiving. You know, when you mentioned what you were saying before about Trieste, which I'm fascinated with, and if we ever get to travel again in this life, I would love to go there with you. If it, um, but love to take you. Yeah, this is something. This is you know, this is the bone that I won't let go of. That I talk about every time I give a talk, which is that this the whole system of mental health is predicated on this sort of mitigation of danger doctrine, and I am offended by that on a human level. I'm offended by that as a mother, and I'm offended by that as a civilized person. The idea that we take a group of people who are afflicted with a physical disease, brain chemistry, and we say we throw away their lives. We say all we need to do is create a situation where these people don't hurt themselves or others. And the irony of that, that they don't hurt themselves, we don't care if they have a life of any value. It's just that we don't want them to hurt themselves or others. And so we medicate them to the point where they're drooling zombies and shut the book and call that a success and send them home to sit in dark apartments for the rest of their lives. And this is immoral. This is inhuman and wrong on such a fundamental level. You know, 1% of the population gets schizophrenia. That's a lot of people. And that's just schizophrenia. There's all the other mental illnesses. They say in America, one in four people have some kind of diagnosis, but specifically serious at mental illness to take that big of a portion of the society and just say they're garbage, because that's what this is saying. These people don't 
matter. Their lives don't matter. All that matters is to have them not be a problem to the greater whole. The idea that I'm out here talking about finding a place in the world for these people, about creating a system that serves these people, we're not doing them any favors. These are human beings with a legitimate right to a life like any other human being. And we have taken that away from them and said that they get to live in the prisons or the streets. What if we did that with people with cancer or any particular disease and just said, yeah, we're not going to bother. So that's my campaign. That's, you know, it's just because when it's your son, all of a sudden you look at it very differently. And it's like not okay that he's just sitting in a room not bothering anybody. That's he's entitled to a whole lot yeah, more. You're striking a chord with me as well. And what I'm going to bring you on this team, because again, at the most recent conference in Italy last September, oh my gosh, it was just a year ago, it feels like eons ago, they had almost a day dedicated to the UN Declaration of Human Rights, and particularly the rights of people with disabilities, and stressing, and you'll love this, that people with mental illness or any disability have a human right to a sense of purpose in their lives. They have a right to vocation. They have a right to work. And I remember Googling while I'm sitting in this conference, because we're listening with headphones, because it's, it's being translated, human rights versus constitutional rights or civil rights, they're different. And the United States has not ratified the UN Declaration of Human Rights. So I'm on a personal quest to better understand why do we set aside these human rights in favor of so-called constitutional right to sit in your own feces on the corner for five years? Yes. That's, but that will be the topic for another discussion. Yeah. I'm going to bring you on that team. So I want to talk a little bit about, you mentioned your journey and trying to understand what was going on and figure this out. And then eventually you discovered NAMI, the National Alliance for Mental Illness. And I have great friends in NAMI, and I, I also learned a lot from NAMI as well. What was important about finding connecting with other families and people who understood what you were going through? Well, it was interesting. Honestly, I really do feel that NAMI saved our lives, Nick and me. I actually stumbled into NAMI very early on. Somebody told me about it. And so I called them because I was just, you know, I was just ravenous for information. I just, you know, to, to have my whole world turned upside down and not understand what was happening was just so unacceptable. So, I, you know, I was just on the Internet and on the phone all the time. And so I stumbled into the NAMI Family to Family Program, which is a 12-week educational seminar that's led by consumers, which is what I guess in Trieste they call users, you know, consumers. They re That refers to the people who have the mental illness and loved ones and people with lived experience. And so it's taught by those people. And it's each week they tackle a different aspect of mental illness, the science of it, the medicine of it, the medications, the legal system, the uh, police system, the family, you know. And at the end of that 12 weeks, very early on in this journey, I had some tools, I had some knowledge, and it changed everything. I walked into this knowing how I had to advocate for him and what I had to do with the police, with the hospital, HIPAA, all these different things. So I'm not big on giving advice because I'm not representing myself as any paragon of anything here in terms of virtue or adeptness. But I recommend to anybody who's starting in on this to take that NAMI program because it will teach you what you need to know and in a very compassionate, hands-on way. So that was very helpful for me. And I'm still involved with NAMI and I write for their paper and I, you know, belong to several NAMI chapters. And I think that it's phenomenal. I have moved a little bit because of Nick's particular type of mental illness into some of the other organizations um, like the Schizophrenia and Related Disorders Association, which is advocating for a reclassification of schizophrenia as a brain disease. And the result of that would be more hospital beds and more treatment available, more money going, and things that are a little bit more nuts and bolts. I hope I'm not going to offend anybody with this, but I have a very strong opinion about something. I think that the way that mental health dollars are being spent now is in inverse proportion to seriousness, where the most amount of money, millions of dollars are being spent on redundant fighting stigma 
campaigns. Now, I'm on the advisory council for Bring Change to Mind, which is Glenn Close's organization, her nonprofit. And I mean, they do a lot to fight SIGA, and that's really important. But I think maybe it was a little more important 10 or 15 years ago. And I think things need to shift because as you go over that spectrum that I talked about, when you get to the scary dark end where we live, the least money is going to them. And schizophrenia and severe bipolar needs research money. There needs to be medication being researched because there's no money in the medications for schizophrenia. So nobody's paying attention to that. So I think that maybe a little less on I'm okay, you're okay, and a little more on let's take care of these drastically sick people and stop just shoveling them out into the streets and saying, we're done with you. Yeah, I don't think that's offensive at all. And and I will link those um, those different organizations in our show notes so people can find out more information about those two organizations. One of the things that struck me, Mimi, and, and you are a pit bull, you are you're one of the strongest women I know, and you're very vulnerable in your book about moving from a place of trying to control everything to finally surrendering to the things that you just you could not control. I think you would have imploded otherwise. You talked about discovering yoga and just trying to find the time for yourself. Maybe share a little bit about that phase and how that may have saved you in a way. Oh, yeah, it did. You know, I reached a point like three or four years into the whole thing where Nick was living in an apartment down on Ninth Street and he would walk up every day and have dinner with us and he was on his medication. And as far as I could tell, no irreversible damage had been done to the girls. And it seemed like everything had sort of leveled out. And I remember musing and thinking one day, okay, well, so this is it now. I I saved him. He didn't die. We just have to keep on the medication and do that treading water thing and get the girls out into the world. And I'll just manage the circus for another 20 years or however long I have, and then I'll die. And Then at one point I thought, wait a minute, you know, I fought so hard and so long to build a life that had meaning and beauty and joy in it. And it's just not fair that I don't get to have joy in my life because Nick got sick and that we as a family don't get to. And then all of a sudden I realized it's a decision. You know, it's not, nobody's telling me I can't have it. And I stumbled into yoga because I used to go do Pilates on way on the other side of town. And that just became impossible and too expensive when all this happened. And so I stumbled into the yoga center on Larchmont because it was close and it was cheap. And I've never been that into yoga. It's not my style. It seemed a little too woo for me, but I thought I'll get exercise and that that's bound to be good for me. And I went in there and, you know, as the weeks passed, uh, I'm listening to skeptically to everything that the teachers are saying, and it started to sink in. And eventually after, you know, a year or so of a good solid practice, I had a real revelation and I realized that, you know, being a type A personality kind of person, I always regarded acceptance or surrender as a weakness. You know, you wave the white flag when you're in war and you surrender, you give it and you lost. That was my thinking about it. And what I learned is that acceptance, surrender is intelligence because when it's not woo-woo and the stars and the moon, it's just nuts and bolts common sense. Why would I keep throwing myself up against a brick wall that isn't going to move? And when I realized that, and I realized that allowing this and surrendering to it was a sign of strength and intelligence, not a sign of weakness and failure, everything shifted. And I also started meditating, which is unbelievable. I never thought I would do that either. But it just, it changed the way I live my life in a a profound way. Um, There's an article that just came out about me in LA Yoga this month that talks about all that in pretty fine detail. One of my teachers wrote the article and it's very interesting about the relationship between this mental health journey and yoga. But once I did that, I was able to reclaim my life and continue to enable Nick to reclaim his and to pattern and set by example to my daughters and my grandchildren and everyone around me that, okay, a bad thing happened, but this isn't the end of the world. And he's not, not Nick anymore. I still have a beautiful son and I get to laugh and I get to have jokes and I get to have joy in my life. And, you know, I think I might have 
a disproportionate amount of joy in my life, all things considered, you know, because I just I actively embrace it and look for it. It's so important that people hear that, all of us, and even at this time in the middle of a pandemic where people are struggling with, you know, feeling guilty about self-care. I'm stuck at home. I don't need to relax anymore. But it's such an important message. And you write about it so beautifully. And I know it helped you get through some pretty significant health scares as well. But we'll let people read the book to understand that. And that's why you fall in the category of the strongest woman I know. I want to touch upon one more thing before we talk about you moving to Washington you mentioned that Nick ended up living in a board and care home on Crenshaw. And one of the things in my research during my fellowship, I was horrified to find out that the board and care system, which is funded at a ridiculously low rate of $35 a day to provide 24-hour care for people, this is where a lot of people with serious mental illness end up because they can't live in a supportive housing unit all by themselves and, and other reasons. Tell us a little bit about that experience and what your impression was, because these board and care homes are closing at a fast clip in Los Angeles and in the state right now. We're trying to keep them alive, but there needs to be a much better congregate living situation for people with mental illness. Yeah, they're terrible. They're terrible. You know, initially we heard about, we thought, I came up with this bright idea of a sober living house because we just wanted to get a roof over his head. And I still had two young daughters at home. He couldn't be in the house with us. And so first I tried to get him into sober living. I thought I would just slide him on in there and not mention the part about the schizophrenia. But as you see rather hilariously in the book, that didn't work very well. So then we found out about the boarding care. And we found this place down on Crenshaw. And basically what the formula is, is that somebody has a house and they convert it to a lot of bedrooms and a kitchen in some sort of, you know, main living space. And they take in people who have mental illness and they feed them three squares a day and put them in bed at night and give them their meds. And they basically receive that person's SSDI check. So it's somewhere in the neighborhood of $830 a month or something like that. And so we went to look at this one on Crenshaw. And I mean, it was the woman who ran it was an angel. But I mean, it was dirty and depressing and horrible. And, you know, certainly it's not going to uplift or nurture anybody into moving towards health or, or goodness. And, you know, we looked at it and there was no way that we would put Nick there. So we didn't. And we ended up finding him an apartment. But that's what they were all like. They're all just these kind of scammy businesses to just, you know, give these people a bed to sleep in. And, you know, you look at what's going on in Italy and you look at some of the places like Gould Farm in upstate New York. That is this heaven of holistic treatment and nutrition treatment and mental health treatment and work therapy and music and living with people who have diseases and who don't. And it's in the country and it's beautiful. And you know what? It's $40,000 a month. So, and somebody like Nick could end up being there for years. There are people who have to be in places like that for their lifetime. So basically any of the places that are good are only for the ultra rich. You know, at one point- Is it $40,000 a month or a month, year? A month. <laughs> you know, there are 20 to 40 to 50 a month, these good places. It's for only the ultra rich. I mean, you know, at one point, I think, and if it had just been me and Nick, I probably would have sold the house on Norton and used all the money to keep him in a good place as long as I could, but we couldn't do that. I mean, and plus, what would we buy it? You know, a year or two, and then all the money would be gone. This is appalling. That these are the only options. So the, the very first and second episode of this podcast series is devoted to the theme of where people with mental illness can live. There will be two women I interviewed. I hope if people would go back, they went on a road trip for a year to look at I any ideal place in California. And we don't have quite as many as we should. But this is also a key issue is where can we provide safe places for people to live that are nurturing and accepting. So let's transition. You, you move to Washington, you're living there now, and you said something very interesting. You know, tell us about where Nick is now, and you're suggesting that the system in Washington is perhaps a bit more navigatable, if that's the word, based on what your California experience was. Honestly, I don't know if the actual system is substantially different or if it's just less taxed in a small town where I live. But the difference is um, when I was in 
Los Angeles. First of all, every facility I went to was horrific. And the hospitals he got put in were horrific. Here in a small town, the mental health sector is pretty nice. You know, so basically you're walking into places that you're at least not walking into the seventh circle of hell. And that may sound superficial, but, you know, to sit in these waiting rooms and look at all these people and then have filth and smells and poverty and all of that, it's it's debilitatingly depressing and it's not good for the patient either. So that's a difference. But then on the other hand, you know, the mental health center where we are here in Washington doesn't even have a psychiatrist. When he sees a psychiatrist, it's tele, you know, it's on Zoom. So you don't have the same kind of availability of doctors, but we're far enough along and I'm adept enough at managing it that we're fine with that. And what's different here that's so amazing, and I don't know if this is just not in the system in LA or that the or the system's just so overwhelmed that it wasn't an option for us. But up here, Nick lives in a subsidized apartment that is I think it's HUD subsidized and it is for senior citizens and people with disabilities, both mental and physical. So he lives in an apartment building filled with old people and people with wheelchairs and a few people with mental health issues. Not many people his age. But it's nice and it's clean and it's taken care of. And there's two lovely women who are in the office three days a week. And there's a uh, a guy who looks after everybody. And so it's not supported living, but it's not he's out there all alone in the world. And that's all provided through the DHS and his SSI pays for it. So he's in a subsidized apartment that's very affordable with good people around him. And he has a DHS caregiver who comes twice a day and gives him his medication and cooks for him and takes him on a walk and hangs out with him. And these caregivers, I mean, I could do a whole show about the caregivers. I mean, these people are truly angels that walk among us. When I look at these, a lot of times they're young women, but just most any of them. When I look at these people who choose to take care of other people with disabilities, physical and mental, you know, they're not making a lot of money. These are minimum wage workers. And the commitment and the love and the acceptance is mind blowing to me because, you know, I have to do this. He's my son. And I, you know, I love him to take on this sort of care for very little money and really care about these people. It's heartening to watch. Wow, that's encouraging that there's a model like that that exists because that, I don't think that that exists here in Los Angeles. You're so right. How is Nick doing and how does he feel about the fact that you're on this virtual book tour telling his life story? You know, that's a bit of a touchy subject. You know, he knows about the book and he knows what it is. He hasn't read it. I don't know that he has the attention span to actually read a whole book at this point. He's expressed some interest in it. I'm a little nervous that it would be upsetting for him. But he's at the point at which I wrote the book and even at the point at which it was being published and then published, Nick was very removed from our world. He was very much in his own little world. He's now going through a medication change. He's changing to clozapine, which is was suggested to me by Ellen Sachs, actually. And it's a drug that's a real game changer. And he's kind of coming back into our world. So we're going to see where that goes. You know, yesterday I was interviewing him with this app that I'd been given for another podcast because they wanted to see if, you know, he could talk about it. And, you know, I kept asking him questions and he would say to me, what is this for again? Why were you asking me? So, you know, I don't know. I don't know how how he would feel if he was really aware of the details of what I'm talking about. But I am sanguine in the fact that this is for the better, the greater good. And if Nick gets to a point where he's so much better that he's mad at me and he wants me to shut up and stop talking about him, I'll take it and I'll let him be mad at me because that'll mean he's better, you know? Yeah, I I hope he will get to the place of recognizing that your story is going to help embolden a lot of people and and also help them not feel alone. And I know you were so disappointed that your book release coincided with the onset of a pandemic because you could have been all over the country doing face-to-face meetings and hugging people and just hanging out in cool bookstores and boom, you've had to do this virtually. But I'd be curious to know, Mimi, has the reaction to your book surprised you in any way? Are you gratified or surprised or what kind of surprised you and how people have responded to this book? 
I'm surprised in the sense that it's doing exactly what I wanted it to do. So I'm not surprised that it's happening because that's what I try to make happening. But it's surprising the extent I get letters every day from mothers, especially saying, oh, my God, this is the first time that I've read something. It sounds like me talking. I've never heard another person talk about what this is like in such a real way. And also, I think a lot of people who are loved ones feel guilt about having joy, feel guilt about having humor. I mean, the book is funny. The book isn't some slog through, you know, the swamps of hell. Yeah, there's bad stuff. It's a horrible thing, but it's also funny and beautiful and moving and enriching. And, you know, I never in a million years would have chosen to do this, you know, by virtue of my son getting a mental illness, but I'm a better person now and I have a better life, a more meaningful life, a richer life. And I work really hard to create that for him as well. So I just, I get letters every day. And I think that it's, it's resonating not only for people dealing with mental illness, but any mother. And I also get all kinds of things from Consumers from people Nick's age, because I have a presence on Instagram at Mimi the Riveter, and I've got, you know, a, a community there. And I get letters from people Nick's age going, I wish you were my mother. I wish you could understand this or, you know what I mean? And, and so it's, it's just, it's touching everybody. And to me, that's so gratifying. It's just exactly what I hope for. Congratulations on that. That's amazing. Well, let me leave this last question in your lap. What is your hope quotient for the future, for change, for all the things? I mean, I sometimes feel a little bit, there are days that are better than others because this system, like you say, is so incredibly broken. It's hard to imagine how to tackle it. But what is your hope quotient at this moment? For me personally, I'm really planning to work further in the direction of my advocacy. And I think that what I've found is that my superpower, you know, the thing that I can do is tell my story. And that's the direction I'm going to go in. Because when I give talks at NAMI meetings, I gave a talk last week. I did a talk to the entire psychiatric department at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York, a mother's perspective on schizophrenia. And it was so well received because these doctors, they don't understand this whole other side to it. So that's going to be what I'm going to do. As far as the overall trajectory or, you know, goal that I have, I think that it's very, very important that we create a viable treatment structure and living option for people with serious mental illness. I think that's one of the most important things that they treatment is difficult to get and needs more money infused into it. And we need more hospital beds and we need places for these people to live. There's virtually no place for them. And I know I'm not telling you anything you don't know. So I think that that's most important. That to me is is my focus. I think that schizophrenia needs to be reclassified as a neurological brain disorder. I think funds need to be reallocated. I think there needs to be more research. And I think primary in this is some sort of inpatient residency long-term for people and also AOT, which is the assisted outpatient treatment, which is a consortium of the law enforcement and the medical professionals and the family that it can be court mandated, that forces the person to stay on the program to treat themselves for the mental health. And that goes back to the same thing of, would you allow somebody who's drunk to decide their medical treatment? No, you have to bring them to a point of clarity and you have to keep them there. And that's what AOT does. Well said. Those are all extremely important objectives to work for. And I just hope that not only with your sharing your book story, it sounds like with amazing audiences, hopefully this podcast will also have a wide reach that we can build a stronger and more motivated coalition for change. I'm so excited to uh, have had this chance to talk with you today, Mimi. And I promise you when our passports <laughs> allow us to travel again, I'm going to take another delegation back to Trieste because it, it is a place of great hope. So have 
have a lovely rest of the day. And I'm going to put all of these amazing links and resources that you shared with us today in our show notes so people will be able to access them. Can I just say one thing to the audience? I just want to say that if anybody, of course, if anybody wants to reach out, please reach out. All my information is there, my email, everything on my website. And I love to hear from people. And I'll, and so far, I've answered every single person who's emailed me because this is what it's about for me is creating this network of loved ones that can support each other and move each other forward. It's a deal. I'm happy to play any role in helping to bring people to you. Thanks again. Hey, did you hear what just happened? Mimi extended an invitation. She said she loves to hear from people, so take her up on that offer. You are not alone. This is how a movement is fomented. People link arms. I love how bold Mimi can be, and it's a boldness made strong by her experiences. She points out that the American mental health system is predicated upon the mitigation of danger doctrine. She finds that offensive as a mother and as a human being. In this mitigation of danger system, we create a situation where folks no longer hurt themselves or others, and we medicate them until they are drooling like zombies and send them home to a dark apartment. It is wrong on such a fundamental level, she says, and people like Nick are entitled to so much more. During the month I spent in Trieste in 2019, when they graciously allowed me to be embedded in their mental health system, I remember driving to a small town with a psychiatrist for the local community mental health center and a psychiatric nurse. We were heading to the home of a family where their 18-year-old daughter was experiencing psychosis, a separation from reality, and hearing voices. I wrote about that in my blog, and it was part of a program in Trieste to ward off further crises in families where problems were just beginning to surface with their children. Imagine if that kind of compassionate and proactive care had been available for Nick in the early days of his illness. Wouldn't that type of early intervention forestall a world of hurt? Next week, we are going to hear about a movement that works to counteract that sense of isolation and abandonment that so many people living with mental illness in our communities feel. The Clubhouse Movement. I had the pleasure to talk with Dr. Ashwin Vassen, the president and CEO of Fountain House in New York, the first clubhouse in America founded in 1948. Imagine if Nick had a clubhouse he could have connected with in Los Angeles. You'll understand more about why I want to see clubhouses all over L.A. County once you hear from Dr. Vassen, and all over the country, frankly. Thank you, as always, to my collaborating partners at Peer Mental Health for providing support for this podcast, and most especially to Paul Robinson, who provides the technical expertise to make this podcast possible. I will see you next week.